0: this is Becca and I'm Sherry. Welcome to the Truth to Freedom podcast where we're going to cover the topic of parental rights, human rights, and religious freedom. Enjoy the show. Welcome back again to the Truth to Freedom podcast. We are excited again today to pick up where we left off last week with part two of a presentation done by Dr. Peter McCullough in Independence, Kansas recently. Again, if you would prefer to watch this presentation or download the slides that he refers to during the presentation, we will include a link in the show notes where you can go and find that information. Again, enjoy this presentation by Dr. Peter McCullough. This is part two.
1: I testified and told Americans uh, in November that we should have had a balanced approach. If I was in Washington running the show, I would have had a group focusing on reducing the spread. I'd have a big push on early treatment because early treatment's the only chance to stop a hospitalization and death. It's the only chance to do it, right? The hospital is too late. When people get hospitalized, that's where all the deaths are occurring. Do you know the still the contemporary mortality of someone sick enough to be in the ICU uh, in a recent randomized trial called the Steroid 2 trial? These are people well enough to sign consent, but they're in the ICU or in the Stop COVID program that's uh, ran out of Harvard, uh, that somebody's sick enough to be in the ICU, the 28-day mortality is still over 30%. That is far too high. I'm a cardiologist. You know, our very serious type of heart attack called the ST segment elevation MI, the contemporary mortality is 2%. COVID is a killer by the time it's in the hospital. The hospital is far too late. That's one of the reasons why I jumped into action early on. I saw things going wrong and I made a, I made a bold statement uh, back uh, I think in March or April. I said, listen, COVID-19 is a serious illness. I'm gonna come up with a plan. If it, it's me alone, I don't care. I'm gonna come up with a plan to stop these hospitalizations and deaths. And I tell you, I articulated the plan and I put it together. I did the best I could as a singular doctor. and I worked very well with teams. Fortunately, I'm very well connected internationally. And I was able to, to really bring international talent to bear to do this. But during this time, not a single president, vice president, White House task force one and two, not a single leader in Washington, not a single leader worldwide articulated that goal to have a team of doctors to figure out how to treat COVID and stop these hospitalizations and deaths. And I can tell you, this isn't Democrat or Republican. This is global. Not a single leader can articulate the problem. And if they can't articulate the problem, there is zero chance they're going to provide a solution. We've had a gross failure of leadership worldwide. An absolute (laughs) gross failure. And it's both... It's both Republican and it's it is Democrat. They are, they are basically, on the failure scale, they are equal. They equally failed because they couldn't state the problem. We've had two presidents in a row that were abject failures in the ability to state the problem and show leadership and make it happen. Both. Failed. Failed. And I can tell you, they wouldn't stand a second with me in a room, and they know it. And I tell you right now, I just it's just abominable that they could not state the problem and do anything about it. In fact, we even had one president, Trump, he got COVID. He got COVID, he got sick himself. He got monoclonal antibodies. He got drugs in, 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 in combination. For him, it was a breeze. He's got his saved his skin with early treatment. He should have been the biggest promoter of early treatment. He should have been relentless on early treatment. It saved his skin. COVID would have ate him alive without treatment. And I can tell you right now, did he show any care or concern? A few comments here came do Zero leadership on early treatment, zero. Before you knew it, he was swept up in the hubris of vaccines and Operation Warp Speed like everybody else. And he, he dropped the ball. Early treatment is where it's at. I've said it over and over again. Now, vaccinated or not, Vaccinated are getting COVID in large numbers, they need early treatment. Early treatment is the only way to drop these hospitalizations and deaths. They're far more effective than putting masks on people who don't need masks or people who aren't sick. It makes sense. Most people who get the vaccine are never going to run into COVID. They never run into it. You can dodge COVID forever. There's people in this room, we've been at this for two years, you've been dodging COVID. You're probably gonna dodge it the whole way and you're not gonna get it. So it makes sense to treat people who've got the disease. These are the two papers. I published them both as first author, big teams. The first team on the left is an international team, second team on the right. These are the most frequently downloaded and utilized papers in all of early COVID-19. When I published the first paper in the American Journal of Medicine, that's a very good journal in the United States, There were 55,000 papers in the peer-reviewed literature, not a single one taught doctors how to treat COVID-19. It's as if the doctors had a mental blank on treating the problem. There were all kinds of papers, you know, observing bad outcomes and describing the virus, but no one was getting off the dime to treat COVID-19. And I just couldn't stand it. I I just thought it was absolutely horrendous that we were going to let the virus slaughter patients, slaughter Americans, and sit back and wait for a vaccine. That was the game plan from the very beginning. Don't do anything. Just sit at home and wait for them to be saved by the vaccine. I said, this is absolutely, positively unacceptable. I'm taking matters into my own hands with as much academic strength as I possibly could, and I published these papers, and let me tell you what, the medical literature is corrupt. It is nearly impossible now to publish a paper. You can't get off first base. Papers are rejected. There's even valid papers that are published that are pulled down. There's censorship going on. And right now, as we sit here today, there's 15,000 papers in the peer-reviewed literature on vaccines, and there's less than 5,000 papers on any forms of treatment. It's obvious the vaccine stakeholders have a complete and total control over the medical literature. And they certainly have doctors in a trance on the vaccine. They're in a trance. You know, you know, up here, there's, we got probably 20 authors and we got another 57 authors here. There's probably only 500 doctors in the entire United States who know how to treat COVID-19. We got a million who are sitting in the background having not even lifted a finger to treat COVID-19 at home. They'll take care of COVID-19 if it's in the hospital, but it's a limited do- number of doctors in the hospital. And the vast majority of doctors tell patients today, there's no treatment for COVID-19, no treatment, none let alone would they mention these papers. Now, interesting, published the manuscript, the one in American Journal of Medicine got a lot of fanfare. I told you they're the most, uh, most frequently downloaded, utilized papers that exist. They blow away anything in the New England Journal of Medicine. And I can tell you this right now. Um, I got letters to the editor. I got six of them from the paper on the left. And the letter to his editor, they came in from Duke. They came in from, Mac- from, uh, from uh, uh, McGill from Manash over in Australia, from Brazil and Germany. The letters to the editor were amazing. Most of them said, Dr. McCullough, you can't treat COVID-19, you can't do this. You don't have enough evidence, you need to wait. I said, listen, I can treat COVID-19 and why don't you join me? Why don't you overcome your fear and overcome your therapeutic nihilism, your intent to do nothing for patients and get off the dime and let's start saving some lives. And what we used is called the precautionary principle. This is a mass casualty event. This is what I told Americans in the historic November uh, uh, Senate testimony. This is what Pierre Cory, who followed up after me in December. You know, these people are now considered American heroes. We told Americans we are going to treat this problem. We don't care if the government's going to sit on their hands forever. We're going to treat the problem. We look for a signal of benefit with these drugs. We look, considered all the available evidence acceptable safety, and put drugs in a combination. We knew a single drug was not gonna save America or save the world. It wasn't gonna be hydroxychloroquine, and it wasn't gonna be ivermectin, and it wasn't gonna be the new Pfizer pill or Merck pill. We used drugs in combination. We don't even treat staph infections with single drugs. It's always combination drugs. HIV is four to six drugs. I knew COVID-19, I knew within a few weeks, this virus was wild, it was lethal, and it took time to kill patients but it needed multiple drugs in combination and it needed them as early as possible. What we learned is the virus uh, proliferates for about two weeks in, in a descending fashion like this, that uh, it kicks off cytokines, and the lead cytokine is interleukin-6, which is unusual. We have all the characteristics, signs and symptoms, the characteristic lab tests, and then what kills patients in the end is thrombosis. It's blood clots. We're back to the spike protein, basically triggering blood clots in the end that kills the patient. Look at the x-axis. It's a long illness. It's a 30-day illness. That's unique. This is not a breeze, and it affects older people far more than younger people. You know, I have somebody in the hospital right now um, uh, who's about 62 or so and he's pretty close to going on the ventilator. His wife is texting me. I said, "Listen, this is going to be a long one." And we're hoping we've got enough early treatment in order to head this off. Our therapeutic response must be initially something to reduce the viral replication, but that can't be all. It can't just be a monoclonal antibody, or it can't just be hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. We need something to reduce the uh, inflammation, the cytokine injury. Cortical steroids, immunomodulators, and we need to treat the blood clotting. This is very important. The blood clotting becomes uh, absolutely critical towards the end. This is the protocol. Uh, there certainly now are additions we can add to it, but importantly, age uh, younger than 50, outside of nutraceuticals and a few simple things, finish quarantine and you're done. That's all that needs to be happened. People under 50 are probably gonna be fine. Age over 50, the risks of hospitalization and death are over 1%, it can be a difficult illness, we add in medical problems, we need to do more. Now importantly, one of the things that's up there that's very important now, um, besides getting the windows open and getting fresh air and reducing the viral load, is we need to decontaminate the nose and the mouth. This is the single greatest thing we've learned. Using dilute betadine or dilute hydrogen peroxide with glucose iodine is to actually do oral and nasal flushes and reduce the viral load. There is a ton of virus in the nose and mouth, and you've got to kill it. And I had COVID-19 last year before all the research was done, and it literally baked in my nose for about three days. And then it got into my lungs, and boy, did I regret it. I wish I would have known to be zapping the nose and the mouth with dilute betadine or hydrogen peroxide. It is like a miracle. In a randomized trial by Chowdhury and colleagues, 606 people randomized to the dilute betadine versus saline. There was a 75% basically... um, rate of basically stopping the virus from invading the body. It was extraordinary how the local treatment really works. So now we have patients who, when they go out in a congregate setting, I think everybody here who's still susceptible, you get home, do a nasal and oral wash with dilute betadine or hydrogen peroxide. Kill the virus in case you've picked it up from somebody. Very importantly, nutraceuticals, zinc, vitamin D, vitamin C, quercetin. There's actually an over-the-counter... Uh, a drug we can use to reduce viral replication called Fomotidine or Pepsid. Former President Trump received that. I now routinely advise that in patients. We then move on to monoclonal antibodies. We have Caracivimab, Indimab from, uh, from Regeneron, but we also now have a GSK and a Lilly drug. Then uh, if we have the monoclonal antibodies, if we, if we have these done right here, we can actually skip the next step so with monoclonal antibodies, I just go ahead and skip and move down here, but if we can't get the monoclonal antibodies, we do need to use hydroxychloroquine. Now it does have a partial efficacy early on. I personally took this in an FDA protocol when I got sick. It's a very safe drug. Of, uh, uh, you probably heard, remember former President Trump talking about it. There's over 250 supportive studies. Is hydroxychloroquine a miracle drug? No, but does it help? It helps. Ivermectin. Ivermectin has a little better efficacy. You hear more about ivermectin. Ivermectin has over 30 uh, supportive randomized trials. And then favipiravir outside the United States. You probably haven't even heard of favipiravir, but it's routinely used in Russia. The Favipiravir is going to be very similar to the new Merck drug called molnupiravir. And we use oral. We use inhaled budesonide throughout. If there's any respiratory symptoms or pulmonary involvement, we use. Uh, prednisone, we now use colchicine throughout, that's a gout drug supported by a very large trial called Co-Corona, aspirin all the way through, full dose, 325 milligrams, high risk seniors, my patients with heart and lung disease, uh, anybody who's already uh, obese and very immobile, no questions about them, I put them on Lovenox injections, full dose, milligram per kilogram, or oral anticoagulants like Eliquis or Pradaxo or Xeralto. We don't play around with blood clots. It's very important. We use aspirin and full dose blood thinners. When the oxygen saturation is dropping, that's micro blood clots in the lungs. Every um, every single autopsy study has shown that. We use oxygen concentrators at home. And by the way, we don't panic on pulse oximetry. We manage people with oxygen saturations into the 80s, and then in selective cases, into the 70s at home. They do it in the hospital anyway. When people go in the hospital, if they don't go on the ventilator, they're basically getting drugs that are available to us anyway at home, and we can manage it at home. If we treat early at home, we can take 14 days of infectivity, shorten it to four days of infectivity, the virus never leaves the house, and we don't actually have this awful spread of disease. If we follow the current program that most doctors advise and the NIH advises, patients sit at home, they get no treatment, the virus progressively replicates, and then finally in a panic after 14 days, a senior citizen calls a family member for help, contaminates the family members, contaminates their paramedics, the Uber drivers, goes to the hospital, contaminates everybody in their are hospitalized. Every single hospitalization in the United States, and there's been millions and millions and millions of hospitalizations has been a super spreader event. That's one of the reasons why America has the most cases per million population and the most desperately because we've done awful on home management. India has crushed their curve with home management. So did so did Mexico City. Some countries have been doing home management all the way through. We can do give more drugs and more comprehensive treatment at home than what's currently given in the hospital. The hospital are following very strict guidelines that don't give such a wide range of drugs. This protocol is supported by multiple uh, societies and it's been augmented by really new products. This one by Glaxo. Uh, Smith-Klein, the Sotrimamav, this product is terrific. It's a monoclonal antibody. Again, high-risk seniors over 65, everybody. High-risk people with multiple medical problems over 50, get a monoclonal antibody infusion. Everybody in this audience ought to know where your monoclonal antibodies are in your community and demand it when you get sick. Why? This is a high-quality randomized trial showing 500 milligrams of this monoclonal antibody cuts hospitalization and death by 85%. Can you imagine this? Plus a little aspirin and steroids. We, get, we, we breeze through the illness. Joe Rogan had this. Joe Rogan got sick. He got monoclonal antibodies. He got the supplements. He got ivermectin, prednisone. He breezed through it. Aaron Rodgers, you know Aaron Rodgers? He got sick with COVID. He just got the monoclonal antibodies, got ivermectin, some medicines. He's already through it. Demand monoclonal antibodies. These drugs really work. Their operation warp speed. You know, it, it, you know, our federal government did do some things right, and the monoclonal antibodies are clearly advanced. I use them every day in my practice, and we also use the off-label drugs. People said, "Dr. McCullough, isn't it a bad thing to use hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin?" No, just like we use colchicine and prednisone and budesonide, we use drugs off-label because the FDA tells us to. One reason is there's no other you know, approved drug to fill that unmet need. Of course we use drugs off label, we always do. The original advertising label of a drug has nothing to do with its current use. The original advertising label is what the drug company wanted to sell it for. No one's gonna do an advertising label for hydroxychloroquine. It'll never be quote approved for anything related to COVID just like Ivermectin is not gonna be approved for colchicine. They're all super valuable drugs that we use together in combination. Fluvoxamine's another one. This one takes some edge off the anxiety and can be helpful with um, that incredible shortness of breath that patients have. Brazilian trial prospective randomized placebo control trial cut hospitalizations by about a third. There is a home treatment guide based on the original protocol that I published. It's now been cooperated, not by me, but by a group that felt strongly about it. It's called the McCullough Protocol, uh, but it's in the COVID 19 uh, home treatment guide by the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons and Truth for Health Foundation. Another group called Frontline Critical Care Consortium has iMath and Math Plus. Those are similar protocols. You know, it's it's common for different doctor groups to have different protocols. But what I told Tucker Carlson when I went to Tucker Carlson is I said, Tucker, do you know that there's no Harvard protocol? There's no Mayo Clinic protocol? There's no University of Kansas protocol? Can you imagine that every single medical school in the United States simultaneously completely went mentally blank on how to treat COVID? Doesn't that stun you? Isn't that an amazing lapse of mental capacity suddenly among doctors? It's stunning. It's stunning. It's not just the United States. We can go to Karolinska. We can go to uh, Menash. We can go. In the entire world, not a single hospital or a single medical school gave a single milligram of treatment to try to prevent hospitalization and death. How can that be? How can that be? This is an outpatient illness. Everybody gets sick at home. 85% of people contracted from family members, and yet in the entire world, not a single medical establishment could treat COVID-19. Well, AAPS did one. That's what physician organization, I tell you, that's one to get behind and support. are the only ones that had like-minded dying doctors that said, listen, we're taking matters into our own hands. We are not going to wait for large clinical trials that aren't forthcoming, and we're certainly not going to wait for guidelines that depend on those trials, and we're not going to wait for the government agencies to tell us to do something. Patients are dying, and we're going to take matters into our own hands. We treat the viral infection, and we handle the pandemic crisis. It's clear. COVID-19 is not going away. You know, we just got through the Delta outbreak, and I checked the curves, and now they're going back up again. As we go into the winter season, here we go again. Why? All the people who took the vaccine early, they're they're not covered anymore by the vaccine. So now all the previously vaccinated people who are still susceptible are going to potentially get a run with COVID. Early treatment really works. One of my colleagues, Eric Grimaldi in Italy, has led treatment domiciliary. They have large cities in Italy with zero hospitalizations. All of you, probably if you've been to Italy, it's a very sophisticated country. How did they do it? They got their program together with early treatment. It really works. They use a hydroxychloroquine-based approach. They use some monoclonal antibodies. Their delta curve was nothing. You know, our delta curve in the United States was 75% of our pre-vaccination curve. We got whacked with delta. Why? Because we didn't get completely in the program with early treatment. In fact, as mentioned by Mr. Corbeck, we had our, our agencies work against early treatment. Doctors being told they can't prescribe these drugs. Monoclonal antibodies not being made freely available. You know, all these billboards that say take a vaccine, we ought to put take those down and put where, you, where grandma can find a monoclonal antibody infusion. People, there's no problem finding a vaccine. Listen, I was in DFW Airport the other day, so listen, they, they'd give out a vaccine if I got anywhere close to one of the gates. I mean, they're, they're giving out vaccines they can't give them away, but yet people who are, who are very sick can't find a monoclonal antibody infusion. What's wrong with our federal response? I can tell you right now, they are not prioritizing sick people. Does early treatment really work? Well, this study by Brian Proctor, this is with the early protocols, showed about an 85% reduction in hospitalization and death. Derwent and Zelenko, early innovators, found the same thing. This is the best we have. There are no large prospective randomized trials of multi-drug treatment. We're going to have to rely on the best comparative data we have. Paul Alexander showed anything done in the nursing home, any of the even early modest combinations of drugs reduces hospitalization and death by about 60%. Every nursing home in this country should have a in-home treatment protocol. And if any of you have any loved ones in nursing homes, call the director and say, what's your, what's your treatment protocol for COVID-19? How do you treat it? Do you have monoclonal antibodies? Do you use ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, steroids? How about anticoagulants? The seniors are very immobile. I can tell you, it, COVID-19 has always been about seniors. It's always been about nursing home residents. It's always been a problem of the elderly. We should never take our eyes off the elderly. That's what COVID is all about. Children and masks and college students and employment mandates have been a giant distraction away from our seniors. This is very important. The seniors are the ones that have died with COVID-19, far and away the vast majority. The seniors are the ones who've died with a vaccine. The seniors are the ones that have been held in lockdown. It's always been about our seniors. It's always been about our elders. This is very important. We have to, as a people, come back to realize who we should respect and care for. It's our elders, and we are being distracted. We are being enormously distracted by all these other groups and all these other interventions. Now, the good news is, um, how many of you have had COVID-19 uh, in the audience, huh? About half, yeah. So this applies to you. I've had it too. 91 studies here. There's a recent brownstone where over 120 studies support natural immunity. 120 studies. Natural immunity is robust, complete, and durable, far superior to vaccine immunity. And it's not just the antibodies. One of the impassioned questioners made the point about measuring antibodies. Yes, but natural immunity is a well-defined case of COVID-19 and positive testing, that's all you need. You don't have to prove it later on. You're immune for life. The virus is 90% homologous to SARS-CoV-1. That's lifetime immunity from SARS-1. Of course it's lifetime immunity from SARS-2. Of course it is, okay? It's, it's antibodies at least against 27 different proteins. Some you can measure, some we can't. And then full T cell, T helper cells, T presenter cell, natural killer cell. The T cell immunity with natural immunity blows away vaccine immunity. The vaccine is only immunity against the spike protein. That's it. And it doesn't last very long and it's not very complete and the spike protein has mutated. Natural immunity is king. Natural immunity is what's gonna end this pandemic. You cannot get COVID-19 over and over again. We've got to stop this myth. Some of you in the audience say, well, I got COVID twice. Listen, you can test positive twice, but you only have the illness once. The test is is frequently false positive. There's somebody in my family circle who got COVID-19 in a nursing home. He had COVID-19 early. He actually tested positive intermittently 17 times. And they kept asking me, has he got COVID again? I said, no, you don't get 17 cases of COVID. You had it once, and the test was, uh, was intermittently positive. Now, as Mr. Kobach mentioned, the CDC now admits they have no record of an unvaccinated person ever getting COVID and spreading it to somebody else. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And you know, for, for now, nearly a year, the CDC has told people who COVID recovered to take the vaccine, even though the FDA knew it was wrong. The FDA excluded these people from clinical trials. The CDC kept saying, well, take a vaccine. You could maybe get it again. You should take the vaccine. It's wrong. We should have never had a single person who recovered from COVID take a single injection. And yet probably easily a third of those who took the vaccine had already had COVID. They took vaccine because they were forced into it or they didn't know. There are people in my family who had COVID. They COVID recovered. They took the vaccine anyway. I said, why'd you do that? They said, well, I don't know. We were told we were supposed to. People didn't ask too many questions about taking the vaccine. This was wrong for the CDC to ever anybody who is COVID recovered to take the vaccine at any time and the FDA was right because the FDA never let COVID recovered into the clinical trials how do we find this out lead attorney Aaron Siri and Elizabeth Brehm his assistant uh, through a demand letter to the CDC of which I'm an expert on through a Freedom of Information Act they basically said listen you got to level with us can you get COVID-19 a second time or not the answer is no This is an example of the CDC. This is hard to take as an American, where the CDC basically is conducting malfeasance. It's wrongdoing by a public agency or officials in public power. This is not new territory for the CDC. I was, uh, yesterday, I was on Diane Andrews' show down in Baton Rouge, and I learned from Diane. She's African American. She reminded me of Tuskegee, the Tuskegee program in Macon County, Alabama. 1932 to 1972, men with syphilis, some with syphilis, some without syphilis, they weren't told who had syphilis. They were followed over time and told they would be getting medicines to prevent syphilis and minerals. They all got placebos. That whole program was run by the CDC for 40 years in the Public Health Service together. The CDC ran Tuskegee from 1932 to 1972. Penicillin became available around 1944, clearly widely available in 1948 in the United States. These men, all African American, involved in the Tuskegee program, which was effectively research where they were not given consent and they certainly weren't given their treatment options, were never told they were never told they had syphilis. They gave it to their spouses. Their children were born with congenital syphilis. The CDC never said it's sorry. The CDC officials, like her, never said they're sorry to the African Americans in Tuskegee for 40 years. They never said they're sorry. It took down. It took to. It took to 1994 where President Clinton had to say he's sorry. He's the one who said he's sorry to the family members who contracted syphilis from the CDC program that they ran for 40 years and they never said they're sorry. Listen, this is not the first time the CDC is doing something that's harmful to Americans. It is clear that's what they're doing with this vaccine program. This vaccine program is in the same vein as Tuskegee. It's a new program. It's a massive program run on Americans with no apologies, with no report on safety, with basically, it looks like, no accountability whatsoever. People aren't standing for it. Diana Harshberger, one of the uh, Republican representatives, is actually wants it in law to recognize natural immunity. If we need to have a law to recognize natural immunity, let's have a law. But i got to tell you right now, Naturally immune people have from the very beginning been screwed. They, they had the infection. They didn't get any treatment. They suffered for this. Many people died. The people who survived went back to the workplace. No recognition of natural immunity. Still got to wear a mask. Senior citizens who got this in nursing homes, they pretend... Like, they need to wear masks, so they still have to wear masks in a nursing home. COVID-recovered people in a nursing home have spent month after month in solitary confinement in more and more lockdowns. I know it because some of my family's been through this. It is so fundamentally wrong to not wreck. A COVID-recovered person in a nursing home should never wear a mask, ever. They should have free reign of the nursing home as much as they want to in the remaining months or years they have left. A COVID-recovered family member should be able to go in and visit a sick loved one in the hospital with COVID-19 and be able to say their goodbyes if they have to. That's how important natural immunity is. Listen, natural immunity, we've got to, everyone's got to fight for it. Whether you've had the vaccine or not, when you get COVID, we've got to fight to recognize natural immunity. Can you imagine if we don't recognize natural immunity? This, this never ends Because you can get it over and over again. You can take the vaccine over and over again. The fear is over and over again. The masks and all the lockdowns are over and over again. It never ends. Unless there's recognition of natural immunity, COVID-19, as we know it, never ends. Natural immunity is everything in getting out of this damn mess that we're in. And you know what? She's got the right view. Many others do. I mentioned before, COVID recovers, never take a vaccine, never. Three studies show harm. I've made a big point of this on America Out Loud Talk Radio, and this is my report. Jennifer Block, British Medical Journal, estimated before May that we had 120 million people naturally immune. CDC recently updated it to 148 million people are naturally immune, and that doesn't include a lot of this most recent Delta outbreak. We could be close to 180 to 200 million people are naturally immune, who should be far away from any threat of vaccination. In the Block article, they showed that it was clear, multiple experts say, don't take the vaccine if you're naturally immune, it's just gonna cause harm. Why are we here tonight? Because freedom is at risk. This idea that you have to win your freedom back at the end of a hypodermic needle. I get panic emails in every day and text, Dr. McCullough, I'm going to lose my job if I don't take the vaccine. My job. And my response is typically, well, about half of Americans are about in the same shoes. We have the most labor-constrained market in the world. So who, who's at risk here? You losing your job or your employers losing their employees? Who's making these vaccine mandate decisions anyway? Nobody wants the vaccines. I, I don't know anybody who wants a vaccine mandate. I, I have strike up a lot of conversations. I've never had a patient walk in and say, boy, I really wish we had a vaccine mandate. Nobody wants these things. People haven't taken haven't wanted to take the vaccine since April. The word got out that the vaccines aren't safe, and now the word's out that the vaccines don't work well enough to ever be mandated. And so, you know, we're having a violent reaction to this, this extension of what appears to be a kingdom of the beast. And that's what this looks like. This needle and this vaccine looks like it's an extension. It is a form of a beast on us. It's trying to break medical freedom... And we break medical freedom. The day you have something injected in your body against your will, your medical freedom is broken. Your autonomy is broken. That is a sacred, sacred, sacred thing, that you have something done to your body that you don't want to have done. That violates every religion that I'm aware of. That violates every principle of medical ethics I've ever known, including the principle of autonomy. It must not be broken. It's everything. You break that blue circle, it's over with. The social freedoms are now broken. That's broken, that's gone. This idea of well, someone goes, I got to take a vaccine, I got to keep my job. I said, what are you getting out of it? Three months of work, six months of work. What's the social contract? Well, I don't know. Oh, okay. So now we're down. Do you have to take a vaccine? And you don't even know what's on the other side of that. And then this idea of having it linked to our economic freedom. You heard Mr. Kobach say, listen, uh, Kobach say, listen, uh, now you got to pay for your testing. So so now your economies are. What, what changed? You know, the, the companies that are going to start testing every week, remember, the tests are not FDA cleared for asymptomatic testing. The, the, the World Health Organization says no asymptomatic testing. The CDC doesn't support it. So any organization that's going to do testing on a weekly basis is breaking every regulatory guidance ex- that exists. Getting testing breaks medical freedom. You should only get a test if you want to get a test, period. Okay? Wearing a mask breaks your medical freedom. You should only wear a mask if you want to wear a mask. Remember, remember before COVID-19? Now, a lot of you travel, you go to DFW Airport, that's a big airport, you remember before COVID-19, every so often you'd see somebody from Asia and they'd be wearing a mask walking down the corridor, you remember seeing that? That's okay, I don't have any problems with people wearing masks, but wearing masks is also an extension of your freedom. If someone's really concerned, and they feel better wearing a mask, they can wear a mask. Now, masks, I get to the point, you know, Laura Ingram has me on a lot, and she always wants me to come about masks, and I've always told the producers, I said, listen, masks are not my signature issue because I think there has to be some give and take here. People are so afraid that if, if they, in general, feel better wearing a mask for Visual appearance reasons, I wear a mask. I walk into the hospital, I wear a mask. I'm a doctor, I wear a mask in the cath lab or operating room. I don't have a problem with the dentist, hairdressers, people at close range wearing a mask. Maybe it would stop a big sneeze or something fine. I don't think we should live or die in the mask for people in the occupations of medicine, nursing, home care, dentists, people like that. I I think masks on children... Where it's clear the evidence is is causing harm, it's impairing learning, it's promoting other sinus infections. Uh, we need to really stand up against that. Masking children is wrong. Okay. Since when do people protest for simple, safe, generic medicines? What does this tell you? Something really wrongs going on. You think COVID-19 is a problem in the United States? Right now we're having an easy time with covid This is the UK. Now he can't spell ivermectin, but he knows he wants it. He knows he should get it. Listen, the word is out, ivermectin works, of course it does. So does budesonide, so does hydroxychloroquine. Aspirin works, people know these drugs work. We can't play games anymore. This idea that some doctor is gonna tell you that you can't have ivermectin, or some pharmacist is gonna tell you ivermectin, I, I gotta tell you what, you've gotta roll over them. They need to be rolled and you need to do it because because the bottom line is they're denying you treatment that you deserve as a person who's sick with COVID-19. You, really, you've you got to show some backbone. I see so many patients say, Dr. McCullough, can you prescribe some ivermectin for me? I said, why don't you ask your doctor? Well, they won't give it to me. I said, why don't you go ask them again with a little bit more, with a little bit more <laughs> firmness and a little bit more of a demand. I mean, there's mothers that get amoxicillin easier uh, for kids who don't need it than ivermectin, come on, this is a bunch of bull. I One time I had a pharmacist from Tom Thumb, a mockingbird in Dallas, he called me up, I was in the middle, I got home from work and I get this call, Dr. McCullough, I have a question to ask you about this ivermectin prescription. Do you know that the guidelines from the National Institute of, of Health say that you should not use ivermectin and, and such and such? I said, listen, why don't you turn to page eight of the guidelines? and read that page to me. There's a paragraph that says, in the end, the doctor decides what, what gets prescribed. I said, you fill that prescription and never call me again. Now, since when does a pharmacist take all the time out of his or her job to, to call a doctor and read a guideline to him? What's in the mind? What's in his mind? Does he do that for diabetes medicines? Does he do it for hypertension? Does he do it for back pain? Why is it in the minds of pharmacists to deny sick patients with COVID the treatment they need? What's in the minds of doctors to not give ivermectin and other colchicine and full-dose anticoagulation to patients in hospitals? What's in the minds of people to force mandates of vaccines that aren't safe and don't work onto their workforce? Listen, that's that's too many people. What's in the minds of these people? Money? Do you think Pfizer sent out a memo? I have to think that it's so bad and it's all over the world, it's way bigger than money. And it's way bigger than Pfizer. It's way bigger than Gates. It's way bigger than Gavi. People's hearts are hardened. They are doing harm to one another. Their eyes are clouded. There's a limited number of people who have eyes to see, ears to hear. I'm telling you, there is a large group. There's a million doctors with scales over their eyes and half a million nurse practitioners, scales. There's 500 doctors who knows what's going on in the United States and you're looking at one of them. And I've led most of them. I am telling you, there is something deeply wrong. You all have to wake up your nurses and your doctors one by one by one. If it takes a million conversations, do it. You have to bring them out of a trance. They're in a trance. I went to Bartlesville. And, um, uh, and we had a program like this. And the next morning I met with the doctors. And, and I could tell you the doctors, all they had to do was tell me that, that it was all the unvaccinated in the hospital and I was cordial with them. But there was one doctor I could tell, he was really agitated. And he basically came up to me, a young guy, younger than me. He goes, listen, I don't want you to come to our town and spread fear. <laughs> and, and I looked at him, I said, I'm not afraid. And if you could look at his face and my face, I'm telling you, there was only one person afraid, and it wasn't me. It's fear. He is absolutely gripped by fear. These doctors are gripped by fear. There's no checkbox for courage when a doctor signs up. Doctors are smart, sure, they pass a lot of tests, they do a lot of things, but there's no checkbox for courage. Now, people in the army, people in the fire department, people police officers, they have to check a box for courage, I bet they do. They have a lot of guts. Doctors have no guts. That's the problem. They have no guts, and you've got to show them, and you've got to, basically, you've got to show a lot more guts and backbone than they have. You cannot have a doctor deny you treatment, demand it, and pound them. And they say, listen, uh, I I, I, I got acute COVID, I want you to treat me, I want monoclonal antibodies, and I want the uh, APS protocol. Now, well, I don't treat COVID. Well, fine, refer me to somebody who does. If a doctor fails to treat you and fails to refer you, that's called malpractice. That's called, that's called failure to treat. Make a note of that. This is very important. There are, we're coming close to 800,000 deaths in the United States. Not a single one of them was treated correctly. Not a single one. And I tell you what, I think there's going to be a tremendous uh, price to pay for that, for the medical system. And this is going on. This woman sues, is suing a health system to force ivermectin And it's been worse, there's been suits that family members want full dose aspirin, full dose anoxaparin, colchicine, ivermectin, and the doctors say, no. No, we're not gonna do this. No, we're the doctors, we decide. And the desperate families say, please. And you know the judge, the judge gives an order and tells the doctors, treat the patient appropriately. Since when do doctors and hospitals have to be ordered by courts to give appropriate treatment. I'm in the ICU all the time. Everything's in negotiation. We negotiate everything, sleeping medicines, pain medicines, blood thinners, everything is in negotiation. There's a process called shared decision-making. That's what we do every day in medical practice. COVID should be no exception. There should be shared decision-making. Suddenly with COVID, again, hardened hearts, scales over the eyes, Something about COVID brings out the worst in people. Suddenly there's no discussion. There's no decision. There's a withdrawal of treatment. Do you know, I've done some stuff on the internet. It's been shocking. There are doctors in the Netherlands. You know what the protocol in the Netherlands for a senior is in some places? It's 40 milligrams of morphine and say goodbye. It's euthanasia and they're doing it. It is heartbreaking. This is worldwide. I'm telling you, something is in the minds is a shockwave across the world. It is a very, very dark time in the world, and all of these are signs and symptoms of it. There is outrage, and you should be outraged, about forced, ineffective, unsafe vaccination. The reason why people aren't taking the vaccine is because they know they can die, and they're trying to weigh out whether or not they keep their job or they take the chance of dying or being permanently disabled with the vaccine. Nobody can figure out who is driving this. Who is driving this? There are so many stakeholders here. People want to point at Pfizer. I don't know. There are. I've done some things on the Internet with Clubhouse. We have young doctors who come on from the bush of Africa to South America. I ask them, do you know who Pfizer is? They don't even know who Pfizer is. They're not on Twitter. It's not Gates Foundation. It's something in the minds of people right now that it's a very, very dark time. I can tell you it is Whatever's going on is way bigger than anything on this slide, way bigger than this. The censorship is extraordinary. Ron Johnson, American hero, has tried to break through this. He led the, the historic U.S. Senate hearings. You know, I've been enormously censored. Many of you have been censored. We are doing something right now that's so important. There are laws protecting what we're doing. We are, we are having a, a public discussion of a topic of importance And in in, in fact, um, in litigation, I've used that in a brief saying, listen, that a lawsuit that tries to attempt to stop what we're doing right now is called SLAP, a strategic lawsuit against public participation. There's active censorship going on. You should know about it. It's in the open. The trusted news service was announced last December when the vaccines came out. It was an agreement led by the BBC, but everybody was involved. All the major media, all the major TV, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, they all agreed we are going to promote the vaccine, and at all costs we're going to squash anything on early treatment, and we're going to squash anything on vaccine safety to promote the vaccine. It's in the open. It's in the open. CNN, all the other stations, they will never give you a single report on vaccine safety. They agreed to do this back in December. Our CDC and FDA certainly are not. The only way you're ever going to figure out that people are dying after the vaccine is either go to VAERS yourself or, you know, go to a podcast or listen to a doctor like myself, give you a report. All I'm doing is giving you the data. I'm not giving you my opinions. We're crushing the lifeblood of science. The medical literature right now is corrupt. Do you know that doctors don't even have open discussions about this anymore? Someone in our circles is Steve Kirsch. Steve Kirsch is uh, uh, he was the inventor of the optical mouse. He's a millionaire, and he started the COVID Early Treatment Fund, and he's funded a lot of COVID research, and now he's, he's, he's now funding the Vaccine Injury Fund. And Steve Kirsch has an open invitation. He's called all the medical schools. He's called the CDC and the FDA. He just wants some doctors to sit around at a table who believe the vaccines are safe and effective and have a discussion. And he's willing any doctor who will sit down and have a discussion saying the vaccines are safe and effective, he'll pay them $2 million on the table. Not a single doctor will show up. I can tell you, in the United States today, there's not a single doctor who truly believes the vaccines are safe and effective. Every single doctor who said, take the vaccine, they really don't believe it in their heart. Who wouldn't take $2 million? That's the easiest $2 million you could ever collect. They actually don't believe it in their hearts. They really don't. This business about ivermectin is awful. The AMA has launched a campaign to abolish the use of ivermectin starting September 4th. And I can tell you, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons shot back and said cease and desist. Ivermectin is frontline, first line in Japan, in Mexico, in India, in South America. There are over 30 randomized trials, 60 supportive studies. What in the world does the AMA have to do with ivermectin? The American Medical Association is a political group to support the the, uh, physician profession. It's not a drug treatment group. It doesn't offer opinions on drugs. What in the world do they have to say about ivermectin? Why is a physician political group trying to crush ivermectin? I can tell you there's only one reason because they are trying to wildly promote the vaccine at all costs. I told Tucker Carlson, he goes, what's going on? What's going on? I don't understand this. I'm just a doctor trying to tell you, Tucker, what's going on in the United States. But it is clear from the very beginning, there has been an attempt to crush early treatment to promote as much fear, suffering, hospitalization, and death as humanly possible in order to prepare the population to accept a vaccine. It is clear. And it's clear it's not one vaccine. It is a series of shots at least every six months for many years. That's what this is all about. It's always been about that. It's always been about that. It's been about promotion of the vaccine at all costs. There never was any attempt to really try to treat COVID-19. What is going on? How can this happen in the United States? How can we have wide open propaganda? How can we have Sanjay Gupta trying to seduce children into taking the vaccine? Because we have the Smith-Munt Modernization Act of 2012. This was the act that actually allowed and enabled propaganda to be legal in the United States. Initially it was oriented so the United States could do uh, ex-US propaganda, but now it actually amends the Foreign Relations Authorization Act to have propaganda internally. What's going on is technically legal in the United States to give propaganda like 99% uh, unvaccinated in the hospital. That's actually legal. America's heroes are being hunted, myself included. Since this all started, I'm the most published person in my field in history. I've had a perfect academic track record. I've been stripped of professorships at Texas A&M and TCU with no phone call, no faculty senate, no due process, just a letter saying you're stripped. I've been stripped of a major editorship from Cardiorenal Medicine, which is a Swiss journal. No explanation. Stripped. I've been stripped of a National Institutes of Health uh, committee that I've been on, Data Safety Monitoring Committee for over well over ten years. No explanation. These letters come from lawyers saying you're stripped. I just got one from the American College of Cardiology. I've gotten a threat letter from the American College of Physicians, and I just got a threat letter from the American Board of Internal Medicine. Okay this is about fear, it's about intimidation, this is about, I know what they want. They want everybody, a needle in every arm, and every person, every six months, that's what they want, and they want it at all costs. And someone like me, I'm kind of in the way. And there must be a lot of behind-the-scenes discussions, and probably a lot of behind-the-scenes money that's passing in order to see if they can get me silenced at all costs. And there's about 500 people in my circles. And there are people like Richard Urso from Houston, who's taken two months off his practice to get the message out. Ryan Cole from in Boise, Idaho, doing the same thing. Ryan Cole is now going to be the highest ranked public health official in Boise. Uh, Jola Dappo in our circles is now the uh, Surgeon General of Florida and in charge of Health and Human Services. Probably every single one of us, if we can survive this, will be in leadership positions because it's got to change. These are American heroes who have actually brought, brought treatment to the best we can to Americans. The only thing I can do is take the message to the public. And thank goodness, thank goodness, some of the media has enough courage to actually listen. And everybody up here, and there's a lot more up there I want to give credit to, but some in the media will actually listen and understand that we have a problem, something different than the narrative. Not everybody is going along with the trusted news service. Not everybody at Fox, but some people at Fox. But we've had Senate testimony, we've had others, and I give people credit. One of the biggest things I did was Daystar. I mean, you watch Daystar, Christian programming. When I go on Laura Ingram, by the way, the viewership's only between two and three million. Like my mom in a nursing home, she watches it every night. I can tell you right now, it's not that many people. The point is, you go to Daystar. Daystar is hundreds of millions of people per view in the world. They do reruns. We can easily get over a billion. Close to two billion people have seen Daystar. They've done a wonderful job bringing the message of early treatment and vaccine safety. A lot of credit. Recently, uh, Ben Marble was on with me on Daystar. Ben Marble started MyFreeDoctor.com. MyFreeDoctor.com is a charity service trying to get medicines to people all through the country. You gotta give Ben a tremendous amount of credit to try to float this. He's received incredible adversity. He's been deplatformed. He's had attacks against his business model, which is a charity model trying to get treatment to patients all over the country. If we don't act now, one of the reasons why we're here, I'm afraid this is gonna be next. This is Melbourne, Australia. Something is in the minds of Australia and South, uh, uh, South Africa and the UK and Europe. They're worse than us. They're worse than us. I got a distress letter from Cyprus, uh, a text uh, yesterday, where they can't leave their houses in Cyprus, period, unless they get a text approval from the government official. They have to wear a mask 24 by 7, whether you're in the house. If you're caught without a mask, you're cooked. You get all these fines and penalties. There's something in the minds of people, and it's not about COVID. COVID is the backdrop for something more horrible going on. It's clearly going on in Australia where they can't get a haircut now unless you've had a vaccine. COVID, they have far more COVID deaths and injuries than they have COVID in Australia. Melbourne's a perfectly reasonable city. It's like San Diego, and they're out they're on the streets shooting bullets at each, rubber bullets at each other. Something is mentally wrong. There's, there's a mental psychosis in the minds of people. We're having a mild version of it in the United States, but it's our job now to snuff it out. Let's snuff out this mental contagion right now. Let's put it out before it turns into a disaster. One of the great guides on this is COVID-19 and the global predators. We are the prey. Peter Bregan and Ginger Bregan have a thousand citations and we'll show you how this was planned. This was planned. How the research, how the spike protein was planned to actually try to get us, try to get us through the respiratory infection, and then hit us through the vaccines. This was planned. This is in the open. The guys, this is not, this is not make believe. Uh, in here, you know, there's lots about Klaus Schwab of the uh, World Economic Forum published the Great Reset. He's laying it out for you. This is not not conjecture. This is laid out for you. Get this book. It's really worthwhile. It lays out everything up to this time point with a timeline of how this was planned and who's profiting and why. There's no doubt about it. This is an enormous reset and change for us in our country. So to finish and conclude, the COVID-19 pandemic is a global disaster. Its pathophysiology is complex. It's not amenable to a single drug. Pre-hospital phase is the therapeutic opportunity. Hospitalization and late treatment form an inadequate safety net. Early ambulatory therapy with a sequence multi-drug approach. You know, former President Trump, Joe Rogan, Aaron Rodgers, I can go down the line. Available sources of evidence reduces the ho- risk of hospitalization and death. M- is more safely allows us to temporize and close out the crisis. The current genetic vaccines have an unfavorable safety profile. The protection is not sufficiently complete or durable. There's 27 vaccines in development. Maybe one of the new ones coming forward will be way better. But maybe Novavax again limited just to seniors and nursing home workers could be a solution. But certainly, no nobody more than that group is needed. Censorship and reprisal are working to crush freedom of speech and scientific discourse and medical progress. So I can tell you, as a mainstream, conventional, academic physician that has spent now two years on this, morning, noon, and night, I haven't taken a day off before since this thing started. I'm not going to until I finish it. The bottom line is I am telling you, with every bit of scientific integrity and clinical integrity that I have in my body, I am telling you, I am calling now to drop all these vaccine mandates immediately. Drop them. Drop them and you make it happen. Go out there and make it happen. We need to prohibit all forms of pressure, coercion, or threat of reprisal. I met a young man who works in construction up here as I was walking up the aisle and he says, you know, the the thing that's really made, made me made that's bad is the vaccines. COVID was okay. You know, we were okay back in January, February. The reason why people can't sleep right now is the vaccines and the mandates over the vaccines. We need to ban all forms of vaccine discrimination, pull from the market. Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J in thorough safety review. Probably replace it tomorrow with Novavax. Let's get a safer vaccine in here and take these menaces basically away out of human use. Begin vaccine injury treatment centers at major medical centers. We have 850,000 Americans who have been damaged by these vaccines. Soon it's going to be over a million. Patients are absolutely furious. The blood clots, the deaths, the neurologic injury. It's extraordinary, and we need a nationwide pivot to early treatment, uh, COVID-19 treatment at community and academic centers. We need to bring Harvard along. We need to bring University of Kansas along. We need to bring all these other medical centers along. They have to, get, they have to overcome their fear and start treating COVID. It's not going away. We're starting yet another wave.
0: Well, that wraps up Dr. Peter McCullough's presentation that he gave in Independence, Kansas. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this two-part series. Again, if you would prefer to watch this presentation or download the slideshow that he uh, presents during this talk, please look at the show notes and a link will be there where you can go and watch or download the slides. We'll see you next time on the Truth to Freedom podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be used as medical advice, but rather a launching point of information to help you be informed and make informed decisions. Every person is different and has unique needs and should consult with their healthcare provider for medical advice. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of Kansans for Health Freedom.